Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Eric Luna, the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at Arizona State University and the founder and director of the Academy for Justice at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. You're listening to Measure Justice. This episode on the Dignity Act will be introduced by my guest host today, ASU Law Professor and Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice, Felina Beattie, whose incredible bio you can find on our website. Without further ado, Felina, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, I'm Felina Beattie. I'm a professor of law and deputy director of the Academy for Justice. And the Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Uh, it aims to connect research with policy reform and share expert voices. So today on this podcast episode, we'll hear from leaders and advocates around the country in prison policy reform issues. They have proposed or supported statutory reforms relating to prison reform and have been deeply ingrained in this important topic for years. Specifically, we'll learn about the Dignity Act was passed with bipartisan support to enhance public safety, protect pregnant persons' health, and strengthen families by improving healthcare, hygiene, and prenatal care for pregnant persons in jails and prisons in Arizona. The Arizona Dignity Act also gives incarcerated parents and their children greater opportunity to maintain strong, lasting relationships. We're fortunate to be joined today by uh, Kurt Altman, the state director in Arizona and New Mexico for Right on Crime. Hi, Valina. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Kurt. It's great to see you again. You too. Uh, we're also joined by Holly Harris, the president and executive director of the Justice Action Network. So we're also joined by Durrell Hill, policy director of the ACLU of Arizona. Thank you for uh, having me. Delighted to have you. Kara Williams, the Smart Justice Organizer of the ACLU of Arizona. Hi, thanks for having me. And Pamela Wynn, the founder of Restore Her US America and a former federal incarcerated person who was imprisoned for a white collar crime while she was pregnant. Good morning, grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. You can find their full biographies on academyforjustice.org. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's, uh, let's start with a basic question for everyone, beginning with Kurt. In our nation, every news cycle, we hear stories of prison and jail reform and ongoing concerns about the criminal justice system. How does the Dignity Act connect with these issues? Well, thanks, Eric. I mean, I think the Dignity Act, just like many of the issues, uh, fits right in because it really comes down to a simple, simple concept in my view. It's how we treat people. Uh, how we treat people when they get out. Who cares for a moment why they're there? But it's how we treat them. Uh, and 
we treat them with dignity, we have a better chance when they come out. We treat them the right way, we're a better society. And that's really what this is about. Thank you, Kurt. Um, Darrell, what about you? What is your perspective on where the Dignity Act fits within this landscape of criminal justice and criminal justice reform? Well, I think the Dignity Act is a recognition that people who are incarcerated are full human beings. They have families, they have children, they have people who care for them, and they're going to be coming out one day. And we need to treat them with dignity while they're incarcerated so they have a better chance of um, you know, prospering when they're on the outside. So I think the Dignity Act is really about treating people with respect, as Kurt said, and really setting people up for success once they leave prison. Pamela, what about your perspective as someone who actually uh, saw the inside as an as uh, someone who was incarcerated in the federal system? What is what perspective do you 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 have on this on the Dignity Act as part of the broader kaleidoscope of reforms that are occurring across the United States? Sure, Eric. For me, the Dignity Act um, brings awareness and knowledge to the American society about how incarcerated pregnant women are treated in the system, how women are treated uh, as a general, um, being that the system was actually built based, based on men and not you know, built for women. And there are a lot of gender inequalities within the system. So for me, it's about bringing awareness to those things. Um, and again, like the other panelists said, reminding folks that we are human. Um, we have made mistakes, but we are still human beings. We are still mothers. Um, wives, daughters, and all of those things. And we still have the same dreams and aspirations as others. We just made a mistake. Kara, you've, you've heard what your, your, your fellow participants in this, uh, in this panel have had to say about, um, about this general landscape of criminal justice reform. What do you think? Thanks, Eric. Um, well, I would have to say that I agree with the other panelists so far. I as well have done time in the Arizona system. Um, so I have seen firsthand the way that women are treated um, while they're incarcerated. It's a shame. It's, you know, an embarrassment to our um, criminal legal system, really. If people really knew what the women go through while they're incarcerated, I think it would really open up a lot of people's eyes because like Pamela said, we're moms we're wives, we're sisters, and we deserve to be treated with respect. And it's really important that we are so that when we come home, we can have healthy relationships with our families, our kids. Um, I have to tell you that when you do come home, there's so many things coming at you that if you already feel less than human, it's gonna make everything so much harder when you come home. So, thank you. Let me let me turn first to um, uh, Darrell, and then Belina, if you would, we'll have you turn back to uh, to Pamela. But that's okay. Darrell, women are the fastest growing segment of the U.S. prison and jail population, and more than sixty percent of women in state prisons have a child under the age of eighteen. More than eighty percent of women um, who are incarcerated. Uh, are, are mothers. Although each year thousands of women are pregnant at the time of their incarceration, most jails and prisons are not equipped to provide resources or address the specific challenges of women who are incarcerated. What does uh, the Dignity Act here in Arizona and elsewhere, um, what does it do for those women who are in fact 
uh, incarcerated? What is their life like? What effect will it have on the various goals that we have for a correction system? Holly, uh, the same question to you. New cycles filled with uh, prison and jail reform issues and concerns about the criminal justice system. Where do you see the Dignity Act connecting with the broader issues of criminal justice and criminal justice reform? Well, you don't hear about it very much, but the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population is women. And one in four women entering our justice system right now is either pregnant or a mother to a child under the age of one. So we're not just talking about an epidemic of incarcerated women, but an epidemic of children growing up without their mothers. And that is a very significant problem. And I'm hopeful it will remain a priority in this country. Ms. Wynn, you were a registered nurse specializing in women's health care. Uh, prior to serving a 78-month federal sentence for a white-collar crime while you were pregnant. Uh, And I'm going to raise for our audience the inhumane treatment you received while you were incarcerated, uh, that during your pregnancy you were uh, shackled. Um, The shackling caused you to fall and to miscarry, uh, and then you were placed in solitary confinement. Uh, And I'm so sorry for that treatment. However, you... You use that experience. You use that experience to lead passing legislation in many states and the federal government. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience specifically related to legislation like Arizona's Dignity Act uh, and what effects you've seen as a result of this work? Sure, I'll be able to do that. To rewind a little bit um, about my personal experience. It was much more than the couple of things that you mentioned. For one, I was in a facility that we didn't even have um, drinkable water. We had brown water coming out of the faucet. We were given recycled underwear, which means used underwear. A lot of the uniforms were like two and three X, like just hanging off of us because they were for the men based on men's sizes. Um, nothing for the women. As far as hygiene items, we're all individual women. We have different menstrual cycles, but every month we were given four pads um, for to last us a month. And, you know, if you have fibroids, that's definitely not going to do anything to help you. So we would have to basically um, help one another out. Women that were menopausal would get their pads to be able to provide them for women that need it. Um, more pads um, every month. And then solitary confinement, which was supposed to be, quote unquote, medical observation. It has so many different names, but they it's still solitary confinement. And then beyond that, even during my miscarriage, um, they would lock us in a cell at 10 o'clock at night. There is no emergency call, but no way to contact anyone if there was an issue, which there was with me, uh, which started happening shortly after I was locked in. Um, And it wasn't about to after two in the morning before any officer came around and made rounds to check on us to know that I was experiencing any problems. Um, And during the time also in the cells, there are no lights. um, So it was dark inside. Um, I knew I had felt a warm gush of fluid between my legs, but I had no clue what it was because I could not see it. And when the guard opened the door, It was blood and it was everywhere, you know, all over their entire room. So just seeing that if I, you know, I was already, you know, anxious and afraid for my baby. And then to see the blood, 
you know, just like that everywhere, just made the whole situation, you know, more, more drastic, you know, more of an emergency. And then the officers and the medical staff were debating back and forth about what to do with me. They didn't even have a plan in place. Um, the officers wanted to call the U.S. Marshals because I was being held at a private uh, holding facility that contracted with the marshals and the FBOP. Um, and so they just weren't clear. The medical personnel wanted to call 911 because they know that I knew that I needed to get out of there as soon as possible. Um, ultimately, after me begging and pleading, they finally did just call 911. And at that time, when I got to the emergency room, I was met by the marshals who automatically shackled me to the bed by my wrist and by my ankle, which is how I endured the remainder of my miscarriage. Also with two male officers between my legs that refused to give me any type of privacy. Um, the nurse even asked them, they stated they couldn't leave the room. Um, she said that she understood that, but could they at least move to a different side of the room where I could have some privacy, some dignity, and they refused. And then the ultimate part of my experience was when I received an ultrasound um, to check the status of my baby. And I had, was told by the nurse that I had passed it. She didn't see anything on the ultrasound. Um, they needed to see it to make sure it was intact. All of the parts were there to know what the next step would be for me if I would need a DNC. And when she asked me about the linen, because it wasn't in the bed with me um, that I had come in with, that I had bled on, um, I told her I didn't know what happened to it because I was so busy trying to make sure that I got there that, you know, I didn't keep up with anything else. And when she asked the officers about the linen, they told her that they threw it in the trash. So to hear, and she was, you know, she was irate, you know, how could you do that? Her baby was there. And so to hear that my baby was discarded as trash is so very disheartening, something I won't ever forget something I can't even speak about or think about without getting emotional. Um, so, you know, that's just, and that's just me, you know, and this happens to hundreds of women, you know, I'm one of hundreds. And so for me, it was a priority when I came home, you know, that something had to be done. Um, I, as much of a nightmare as it is, and as much as it hurts to talk about it over and over, I understand that it's necessary in order to make people aware, because when I talk about it, the first thing, the response I usually get is that people aren't aware that this is happening to women. They really aren't even aware that there are so many women incarcerated, and that's because there is no standardized care across the country. In any facility, everyone has their own rules. They do their own thing. And then on top of that, there is no data collection. Data collection is so scarce. The little data that we do have is always old. And it's usually from, not from the facilities that are um, detaining the women, but from outside sources like academia or myself, my organization, we do our own research because there is none out there. And so a lot of times we get pushed to the side because without the data, you know, um, you know, most legislators and that type of thing rely on data to tell the story. Although we are telling our lived experience, 
we need the data to back it up so they can know that it's it's really real and we don't ever have that data. So that makes it more challenging for us to make changes if we can't have the data, even, even down to um, passing the dignity bills. So in my state, home state in, in Georgia, um, my bill was HB 345, which I wrote myself um, because, and I guess I should shed some light on that. The dignity legislation, um, depending on where you are, what state and what the needs are, the bills vary and in what information is in them. Um, so in my, in Georgia, I wrote um, the legislation for our, our bill based on my lived experience. So our bill includes additionally to the things that you all mentioned about Arizona, um, it includes solitary confinement and shackling in it as well. Um, we did have data collection in it. But on the very last Senate vote, the sheriffs put in an amendment to have it removed. This is how much they don't want to provide data um, to support um, what's really happening with women who are incarcerated. And um, so my version of the Dignity Bill, um, I have worked, well, I worked with Jessica Jackson and Van Jones with the Cut 50 organization, and we were successful in getting the legislation passed in 15 states. And then um, Restore Her independently has worked with Ohio, South Carolina, um, Ohio, South Carolina, Mississippi, which I was surprised, passed theirs with no objections, no obstacles. It was just straight unanimous. I was ready to fight there. Um, and most recently, North Carolina in September passing theirs. And so their language is basically the same as the Georgia language. Alabama is the only Southern state that has not passed theirs, but they have filed it for this session coming up. And I will be working with them to get it passed in Alabama. Um, so I'm grateful, you know, that people have enough empathy and enough compassion to recognize us as human beings and stand up to say what's happening is not right, that the dignity legislation has been so successful. Um, and but we have to keep it going um, here currently in Georgia. We're working on the next step because the problem with the Dignity Act is implementation. And in most states, it's not being implemented, Georgia being one of those states. And when we contact facilities that are not implementing it, the most common responses we get is that they weren't, they're not aware of the law. And I'm like, how can you not be aware of the law? But in addition to that, again, without data, we don't know how many women there are. We don't know where these women are. So we rely on our communication with women on the inside to provide us that information and to spread word of mouth to others, to let them know, you know, to contact our organization when there are problems. So our next step because of this is called the Women's Care Act, CARE being an acronym for Childbirth Alternatives, Resources and Education. And we introduced it this last session here in Georgia. It passed the committee hearing unanimously. And um, however, we ran out of time because you know, everything was concentrated on the voter suppression bills. So we'll be back this session and we expect for it to pass through. And what the Women's Care Act will do is when a woman is arrested, if she has not bunded out within 72 hours, she must receive a pregnancy test. If that test is positive, she has to be automatically bunded out 
uh, without any questions asked. And beyond that, if she is convicted and sentenced to serve time, her sentence is deferred six to 12 weeks postpartum after she delivers. This will allow her the autonomy to make her own medical decisions, to get proper perinatal care um, and postpartum care, to have some bonding time with her child, you know, to be able to breastfeed for that little time and to make sure that she has had a well postpartum check before she enters the system to serve her time. But more importantly, it provides her ample enough time to make decisions about what happens with her child. Um, Because here in Georgia, when women give birth here, they get a max of two hours with their baby. And that's only if we are properly staffed and the staff adheres to that. So most times they don't get the two hours and then they have 24 hours to say where their baby goes. If they don't have a plan in place and 24 hours, the state gets involved, they end up losing their parental rights, which adds more anxiety to a woman serving time, not knowing where her baby is, if it's taken care of and then losing her rights. And so when they're released, now they have to find their babies and fight to get their child back. And we want to stop that. Also, Georgia is the highest in maternal infant mortality. And because of that, having women induced, which is another thing that happens here in Georgia, all of the pregnancies are induced for incarcerated women. Because again, they're not important enough for staff to want to come in after hours if they go into labor. So unless you're fortunate enough to go into labor Monday through Friday, nine to five, you don't have a natural labor. And in a state where we already deal with high maternal infant mortality, that's not something that we need. So this bill will help um, ease all of that and also, you know, relieve the burden of cost and liability on the penal institutions and not have to let us hear these horrible stories that we hear commonly about women delivering on their own in their cells. And, you know, their babies don't, as mine, you know, not making it to have a healthy life. These babies are innocent. They're not guilty of any crime. And they should be given the same opportunity as any other baby to make it. Pamela, thank you for sharing your um, your story. And sorry for how horrifying it was. And, 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 and kudos to you for your efforts to try to improve the conditions of women who are uh, incarcerated now in jails and prisons. Thank you. Darrell, you you heard Pamela's story. It is harrowing. And let's talk, let's put it in some broader context, as well as specifically looking at the Arizona law. Women are the fastest growing segment of U.S. and prison and jail populations. As Pamela noted, there isn't a whole heck of a lot of data on specific issues and concerns of women who are in prisons and jails. But we do know that more than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18, and uh, that more than 80% of women in jails are mothers. Each year, thousands and thousands of women are pregnant at the time of their incarceration, uh, and yet most prisons and jails are, are simply not equipped to provide resources or to address the challenges facing those women, as uh, Pamela detailed so eloquently. What does SB 1849 the Dignity Act here in Arizona, as well as Dignity Acts elsewhere. Um, How will they affect the life of people in prison? 
the women in jails and in prisons around the United States. Uh, Darrell, what, what, what are the types of problems that this legislation hopes to over, overcome? And do you see any potential problems that might stem uh, from this legislation or its implementation? Uh, thank you, Eric. As a starting point, I think you know our main concern here is the main the main point of the Dignity Act was to make sure that pregnant women are receiving the prenatal care that they need and that they are um, you know allowed to spend appropriate amount of time with their babies um, once they're born after after um, after after birth. You know, in Arizona, I've I've had the chance to visit Perryville several times um, as, as a lawyer and an attorney. Um, and I've been shocked at the conditions within Perryville, particularly how they relate to pregnant women. Um, many times pregnant women are in cells that are you know, far too hot. Um, they're not receiving meals regularly or you know, extra meals. So you know, I've dealt with many pregnant women in, in incarcerated in Perryville who weren't gaining proper weight. You know, as Pamela said, there's there's not access to regular medical services, so many women are forced to give birth via C-section or you no, know, give emergency birth, and you no know, late at night when there's when there's not you no know, doctors on on site or nurses on site, so they are they are rushed to the hospital and you know, forced to give birth in less than ideal circumstances. I think the Dignity Act is just the first step in kind of addressing these these issues. One question I think we have to ask ourselves is: Should these women be incarcerated at all? You no. Know, when we're dealing with people who are in you know very stressful medical situations, who have families, who have other concerns, we 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 really need to ask ourselves: Is is incarceration the the best option here? And a lot of times it's not. Um, what the Dignity Act does is. For those women who are incarcerated, it ensures it, it, it a basic level of care, ensures that they're receiving meals, ensures that they're being able to um, stay with their, 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 their children for 72 hours after birth um, so they can have that time to bond and to be mothers and be to establish relationships with their children. But you know, the problems for, for incarcerated women are 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 many many fold, and the Dignity Act is just one step in you no know, kind of addressing those issues. Thank you so much. Can I add something in that, please? Oh, of course. Yeah. So that basic care that he's talking about, um, as a directly impacted woman, will be a prenatal vitamin. That would be the basic care, um, not actually routine um, obstetrician visits or even having. If you put in a meta request because you have a concern about something being addressed in a timely manner, nutrition, extra meal is whatever they decide to give you as additional, which most of the time is not nutritionally adequate for a pregnant woman. High in sodium, you know, and those type of things is not something that you would want to give a woman to for a viable, healthy pregnancy. And 72 hours is definitely not enough time to make any type of bun with anyone. Thank you very much for sharing that and highlighting that, and particularly with your experience as a nurse as well. Uh, And it really shows that even as we're improving horrific conditions, there's still a long way to go. 
And Ms. Harris, I'd like to turn to you about that a little bit. Uh, your organization, the Justice Action Network, puts on a groundbreaking conference in uh, 2017, Women Unshackled. And it brought together advocates and legislators from around the country to bring national attention to uh, that particular challenge that women face in jail and prison, being shackled while they're pregnant, but also uh, bringing attention to women's experience in prison. As we heard from Ms. Wynn, uh, not even being able to get uh, uniforms that are for women, you know, that are just men's uniforms that are uh, then distributed to the women. Uh, so I wonder if you could share with us what the participants learned from that conference and the recommendations that were made, and hopefully how that uh, gathering shaped the landscape of prison reform for women and pregnant persons. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. It sort of takes me on a trip down memory lane. We, um, it was the summer of, of 2017. And I believe it was that spring I had made a visit to um, the Jefferson County Detention Center that's in Louisville, Kentucky. And I visited, you know, with both the men and the women. And what was striking to me was that the men all received vis visitors on a regular basis. And when I was talking with the women and I asked them, you know, how many of them, you know, received visitors, there was only one woman who raised her hand. Um, I then asked, you know, how many of them have children? Every woman in the room raised her hand. And, you know, I, as I got to talking with the women, one of the biggest challenges that they have that a lot of the men don't have is that, you know, their appearance changes so drastically when they're incarcerated. And, you know, you don't really think about that, you know, and, and to some that may seem like a vapid concern. But, you know, I remember going back and talking with my my team, which is primarily made up of women, about, you know, how many products and items that we use to get ready every day. And I mean, y'all, it was between 10 and 20 um, and for some even more. And, you know, so all of these women, their appearance changed so drastically that, you know, many of them didn't want their family members and their friends to see them that way. And it was just it was heartbreaking to me. And that that seemed again, it seems so simple, you know, but it was actually something that was, you know, really uh, driving their confidence down, hurting their attempts at rehabilitation, harming their communication skills. I mean, all of the things that, you know, they were going to need, you know, when they reenter society, um, at least to be able to do so successfully. So at that point, uh, you know, we started doing some digging on uh, some of the data. And of course, we, we learned that women are the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population. We started looking into the drivers of incarceration, which, you know, primarily at that, at that time was, you know, drug abuse and addiction. And, uh, you know, of course, it was utterly heartbreaking, especially, you know, as a single mother to, to learn how many of these women had children or were pregnant when they entered jail and prison. And so uh, as we were uh, looking over legislation throughout the country, there was really no legislation being filed related to the particular and unique needs of incarcerated women. So we decided to, to come together and, and put on this conference um, called Women Unshackled. And y'all at the time, I mean, we were hoping for maybe, you know, 50 participants. And it was so shocking. We received over 600 RSVPs to this conference. I mean, women flew in from all over the country. And we realized at that point, you know, wow, we've hit a nerve. 
I mean, this is something that people really care about, but you know, women really are not represented in so many of the legislatures across the country, at least not adequately. And so a lot of these issues, even though women care about them deeply, they're not priorities in state houses across the country. So we, we, we pulled together all of these women. We had these incredible panels, you know, women like Pamela sharing their stories, you know, impacted women, lawmakers from the right and the left, um, you know, groups ranging from, you know, the, uh, Faith and Freedom Coalition, which is extremely conservative and very pro-life, uh, to, of course, the ACLU. And, you know, a series of recommendations uh, came out of that conference, very general recommendations, um, you know, related to, again, the particular needs of women who are incarcerated, but also talking about, you know, what we could do to look into alternatives to incarceration for a lot of these women who, quite frankly, are not public safety threats and um, would certainly see better outcomes, um, you know, through alternatives such as uh, treatment and, and some wraparound services that could help them get on their feet. So, after that conference, several dignity bills will, were filed across the country. And, and as Pamela mentioned earlier, you know, it was different uh, in every state. Uh, but the first bill to pass, interestingly enough, was in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, which is, is, is my home state. And it was Senator Julie Rocky Adams, a, a, a very popular senator from Louisville, um, who filed the legislation and really met significant obstacles. I mean, we really thought this would be a, a no-brainer. We were able to pull law enforcement on board. You know, the Prosecutors Association was supportive. Our, our jailers were supportive. And yet there were still lawmakers, you know, who just, um, quite frankly, had a, a, uh, an ignorant view of, of, of not just, you know, the people in our justice system, but just of, of, of women generally. I mean, I remember one lawmaker actually making the statement that, yeah, he felt like women would get pregnant on purpose to avoid jail or prison. And I was just aghast. I mean, just aghast. And so, uh, you know, after that, though, it, it really drove up support for Senator Adams' bill um, with the public. And we got a lot more attention in the press. And the bill ended up, you know, passing with overwhelming bipartisan support. And, you know, it was right after that, that we were litigating the First Step Act at the federal level. And Senator Julie Rocky Adams just had to be, happened to be a very close friend of one Mitch McConnell. And uh, I recall her having a conversation with him about the bill and, and, and how important it was and that it not only was it sound policy, but it made for great politics because, uh, you know, at that time and certainly today, um, you know, the constituency turning elections these days is women. And this was an issue that was very, very important to women, um, you know, whether they were impacted or not. And so, uh, you know, Senator McConnell uh, was uh, found her case very compelling and ultimately, um, and was a Democratic senator at the federal level, Representative Karen Bass, who worked with our organization on the Dignity Bill at the federal level, and elements of that legislation were included in the First Step Act, which was, you know, the most significant uh, piece of prison and sentencing reform legislation passed in a generation signed into law at the end of, of 2018. So, you know, it was a, it's a really, it's a fascinating story about how women really drove you know, broader policy at the, the federal level and how it started in, you know, the, the tiny Commonwealth of Kentucky. And, and now it's spread all across the country. And it, it is truly due to the incredible work of women, you know, like Pamela and organizations like the ACLU of Arizona, the Pegasus Institute, which is a, a center-right uh, think tank in Kentucky, you know, really that have, have linked arms and worked hard uh, to build bipartisan consensus 
you know, to address, you know, these unique concerns related to incarcerated women. The stories are harrowing. They are heartbreaking. And it's, you know, it's hard to think that there are lawmakers out there who couldn't support um, this legislation. But like I said, there's still a lot of, of misperceptions about incarcerated people. There's still so much ignorance um, around incarceration, incarceration generally. And so, uh, you know, to Darrell's point, you know, earlier, I think we've got to start talking more broadly about alternatives to incarceration. Because, you know, once a person's incarcerated, you know, you've permanently handicapped that person. You know, it's, it's so much harder to, to find a job, to secure adequate housing, to improve your education, um, you know, to stay on a, um, a path of, of productivity. Um, and, you know, that's what we expect of people who come out of prison. And yet we throw up all of these obstacles, you know, to ensuring that people can, um, you know, productively and successfully reenter society. So there's a lot of, of conversations, you know, that that relate uh, or that that come out of that were drawn from that that conference that that I'm hopeful will lead people to um, the conclusion, the rightful conclusion that incarceration really is 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 not always and in fact in most cases is not the best path for people who have made mistakes and so at, at any rate yeah i mean it that conference was it was life changing it was incredible to see the support it was wonderful to see the bipartisanship of individuals ranging from the extremely conservative representative Doug Collins uh, who actually opened the conference uh you know to women like Sheila Jackson Lee you know very progressive um uh representative from Texas so um, anyway, I'm, I'm in awe of the work that's been done uh, by impacted women all over the country. I, I, I love to see, you know, this movement growing and certainly um, feel so hopeful when I hear the stories of the women who've been impacted by the dignity legislation. Thank you, Holly. And let me let me extrapolate from that with with Kurt. Kurt, you have an extensive record of experience on criminal justice reform generally and with prison reform in particular. You have seen the legislation that has been passed in recent years. And then, as Holly just mentioned, there has been this focus on legislation for incarcerated pregnant persons, seen legislation passed in Missouri and Mississippi, uh, now in Arizona. It's been introduced in other states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And you saw the particular bill here playing out in Arizona. So what do you what does this tell you about changes for women who are incarcerated in either the uh, jail or prison system of a given jurisdiction? And what does it tell you about more more generally uh, what the likely changes are in the future or the spots that deserve some attention uh, for reformers? Um, uh, in various states across the country. Uh, thanks, Eric. Uh, you know, to begin, I'll say the changes that, it, that it's bringing about are good for women, right? But these changes are long overdue and slow. It's, it's, I listened to the stories from Ms. Wynn, and I, I listened to the stories at legislatures, and, and I see these bills passing. Part of me just thinks it's remarkable that they're needed, um, but they are. It seems like these are just common sense, common sense procedures that we should have been taking all along to treat people. You know, I said it earlier, a society's judged on how it treats uh, its folks that are the downtrodden, treats the folks that are in prison, that they're punishing for some reason. 
And the fact that we need legislatures to pass these bills in order to direct departments of corrections to treat women correctly in prison is remarkable to me. But regardless of, of it being remarkable to me, it is necessary. And what strikes me in Arizona, all these other states that have passed dignity for incarcerated women type bills is, um, and, and we've heard a little bit about it from the other panelists here, the bipartisanship that they've passed. I mean, most of the time they come through committees unanimously. Uh, they come out of Senate and House votes pretty near unanimously because people kind of look at each other and go, um, well, geez, this makes sense. We should do this. No matter what people argue, women have different needs in the prison system than men, significantly different needs. And these bills are helping us move forward and address those needs. You know, when I was a, um, a long time ago and, and something that stuck with me, I was a young prosecutor at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office. Uh, and, and they have morning calendars where people are getting sentenced. They got tons and tons of people moving through those courtrooms. And I was there for a sentencing on, on somebody that I was prosecuting. And there was a case before me and it was a woman uh, who was being sentenced and she was shackled um, hands and legs like they uh, do in Maricopa County. And I walked into the courtroom and saw that she was sitting in a chair in the middle of the courtroom instead of standing at the podium like normal. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what's going on with that. So I watched and I realized that she was in labor. Um, and it was the first or second year I was a prosecutor. She was in labor during the sentencing in the court system. Everybody was rushing to get it done because she was in labor. And when the sentencing was over, they brought a wheelchair in took her out of the chair she was sitting in, shackled, hands and legs, put her in a wheelchair and wheeled her away. And, and that image has never gone away uh, from my brain. It stuck with me. It was the most remarkable, in, in a bad way, thing that I had ever seen. And that had to be 25 years ago, Eric. And, and it's just now that the country uh, is moving forward, both through states and on a national level, um, and saying, hey, we need to address what we do with incarcerated women in a better way. Uh, again, I agree with what everybody said. I think there's many, many things we can do on the front end. We probably shouldn't incarcerate as many people, both men and women. Uh, I think there's alternatives out there. That's what Right on Crime and people on this panel work to do um, to change those types of sentences and, and reduce that incarceration. But hey, the ones that are incarcerated, we need to treat them the right way. And thank goodness people um, like they're on this panel, legislatures around the country, the federal government are working to say, hey, these people are different. Women are different. They have different needs. And if we're going to put them in prison for whatever reason, we need to treat them in the right way. Um, the stories from Ms. Wynn, the story that I shared with you are, are just small examples of what you see in 50 states. And thank goodness we're moving forward and uh, we're making some good progress. We're not at the end. We have a ton of progress to make, but I think we're getting there. And I think um, as we move through issues with women in prison, we're going to see, hey, these folks don't need to be incarcerated or those folks don't need to be incarcerated. And that's going to start um, having some effect on what happens. And hopefully we move on to the prison system in general and look at it. The country that incarcerates more people, right, than anybody in the world or at least close to that. Um, why are we doing that? And is it necessary? And thank goodness all these folks are working so hard on alternatives. And uh, we're just going to keep pushing that train down the tracks um, in the right direction. And I hope it, it continues.
Thank you. And thank you for sharing that perspective of what you yourself have seen happen in the courtroom. Uh, and I'd like to turn to Ms. Williams um, to discuss uh, Arizona's Dignity Act in particular uh, that was passed into law thanks to bipartisan support from advocates, organizations, elected officials, um, you know, as, as has been discussed already a bit. Uh, and Ms. Williams, you played a role in Senate Bill 1849 being passed. I wonder if you could share with us the process by which it became law, how various constituencies coalesced around this bill, and whether we have hope for future reforms, for continuing to move in this direction. Well, thank you, Melina. So a couple of things I want to say. The process started for me um, because I am directly impacted. I am formally incarcerated. I did collectively about five years um, at Perryville, which is the only women's prison um, here in Arizona. And <clears throat> when I was inside, when I first, my first stint that I did, we were given 10 pads a month. And these pads were the cheapest pads that you could possibly get. And anybody, any woman who, you know, well, all women menstruate know that 10 pads is not nearly enough for your full cycle. And unfortunately, because they did not give any tampons, women would make tampons out of those pads. So that's just one way that they take away our dignity in prison. Um, I had an experience where um, it was in uh, receiving and assessing. So basically where they decide uh, what risk you are and what unit you go to. When you're there, you're given a jumpsuit, one shirt, uh, one pair of, like um, the other panelists said, Miss um, Wynn, one pair of used underwear, a pair of socks, and one bra, um, and then your 10 pads. So there was a woman next door to me who had gone through her 10 pads and had borrowed as much as she could from the people around her. She didn't have any more. So when we were um, taken to lunch, <laughs> she was forced to wear her bloody jumpsuit to the cafeteria in front of everybody. I mean, that's the most dehumanizing thing that I can think of. I, I remember my blood just boiling that day when I had to watch her walk across the yard with something that was super embarrassing that she had no control over. So after that. Um, oh, and Ms. Williams, if I could just jump in for a minute. I know that I've had clients, female clients who have been written up for hoarding pads. So if you do have a light period and you try to keep those pads for the next cycle, you can literally be written up and punished for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they come and do checks on us pretty regularly. And that's one of the things that they look for is hoarding. Um, I don't know how one can actually hoard pads because who, who says what's enough or what's not enough? Like, especially men, which is mostly the corrections officers, um, <laughs> weirdly enough on the women's yards. And two, the men make it embarrassing for us, the women, when we have to go up and ask them for feminine hygiene. 
They make it to where it's embarrassing. It's shameful. You don't want to go ask. It's really just ridiculous. So when I came home, I kept in contact with many women there. Actually, let me just go back a second. So I had to go to court while I was in prison. When I came back, they asked me if I wanted pads or tampons when I got back to Perryville. And previous to this, we had only been given those 10 pads. This was in 2018 when there was another bill that a representative here, Athena Salmon, had created basically the same kind of bill, the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act. It pretty much had the same stipulations in it, right? The bill never got passed, but it did force the Arizona Department of Corrections to change their policy. So when I had come back from court, they actually had tampons to give us and pads, and we had we had unlimited supply. Now, don't get me wrong, the officers still made it uh, uncomfortable to ask for the products, but we were given an unlimited amount. So when I was released in November of 2018, um, like I said, I kept in contact with a lot of women at Perryville. And I started to learn that slowly but surely they were going backwards to where the women were only getting 10 pads a month. So I kept in contact with them. And the process in which I went through to help get this bill passed was to be in contact with other women who are now released. We train them to share their stories um, to lawmakers um, up at the legislature while we were talking about this bill. And we did have bipartisan support, but I can tell you that like many of the panelists said, when you're in a room with basically all men trying to get them to understand what women go through, it's very, very discouraging to hear the kinds of things that they say. For an example, um, I had one senator tell one of my speakers that the reason that we don't get an unlimited supply of pads and tampons is because we will flush them down the toilet, all of them down the toilet to make problems and um, you know, flood the cell or whatever it might be. That was their excuse for not allowing women to have the products that they need. Like to me, that's just ignorant. Like some others said, like just to be in front of men to try to get them to understand what we go through. Like what can we give them as an example to the, what they would understand as a man, like something that's as shameful and embarrassing and uncontrollable um, really, how do we give them an analogy to make them understand? I mean, I can think of one, but it's not appropriate to say at the legislature. So after sharing our stories of um, our lived experience, like, like Kurt said, this, this shouldn't even have to be in the legislature. It, it is common sense. I shouldn't have to get be trained to share my story in front of men to get them to understand why this bill is so important. It shouldn't even be a thing, but it is. 
across the country. Uh, here in Arizona, we are the fourth highest incarcerator in the United States, which means that we are the fourth highest incarcerator in the world. And like the others said, we have a rising women's population, which are mothers. Most of them are mothers. And most of them are being criminalized for a health issue, for substance abuse. Like so many others said, we can stop this in the beginning. We don't have to be sending all of these people to prison for substance abuse issues. I can tell you from personal experience that I went to prison for substance abuse issues. Almost everybody that I knew that was there was there for either drugs, directly were charged with drugs, or it was a secondary type of crime that was because of drugs. So I think it's really important that people understand that this is not just, you know, a prison issue or a criminal justice reform issue. This is a, a community issue. When we're taking women away from their children for long periods of time, for substance abuse issues, and then not giving them any treatment while they're in prison and expecting them to come home and go back to normal, being a mom, a wife, a sister, but with all of these other barriers, like the other said, not being able to find a job, not being able to find suitable housing for you and your children. Personally, I went through the same thing. The places that take felons here in Arizona are not places that I want my children to live. It's unacceptable. And the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act is a very small step. It's unfortunate that this is the step we have to take. When I say moving in the right direction, yes, absolutely. But my job right now is to make sure to hold DOC accountable because they go by their own rules. They can tell the public anything that they want. And what's really going on inside is not being shared with the community at large. So I keep in contact with many women at Perryville to make sure that they're getting what they need, that this new law is not just being, you know, passed to the wayside, that they're actually putting it into use. So hopefully, so far it's been pretty, pretty good. I did get reports that they're giving out tampons that are uh, unsafe. So I've been working on that. But other than that, I think it's a very good step. It's really just holding DOC accountable. And like Pamela said, um, I think that the women who are giving birth while incarcerated should be given uh, way more time than 72 hours. I think here in Arizona, before this bill was passed, it was only 24 hours. But I've heard of other states that allow women to stay with their children in certain facilities if they are incarcerated while being pregnant. So why can't the rest of the nation do something in that effect? Or like Pamela said, deferring a sentence for six to eight weeks to make sure that the mom has time to bond with their child and to make sure they know where their child's going, that they don't just disappear and then they have to go find them however many years later. So like I said, just 
making sure that women are treated with respect, dignity will, in my eyes, reduce recidivism, make the community a safer place, and bring women home with much more potential at success and healthy relationships. Ms. Williams, I'm so glad you're in touch with uh, women who are incarcerated at Perryville because as Ms. Wynn was saying, it's a catch-22 where uh, prisons frequently are not transparent about the treatment of incarcerated people uh, and about that data and stats. And yet legislators often want the data before they pass a bill. So it really is this catch-22 and it doubles the importance that uh, organizations like yours are in touch with women who are incarcerated. And that, that it's a good segue to a more general question for the entire panel. And maybe we can go through and have go around the horn with each person, give their, their quick thoughts. Uh, before moving on to uh, next steps for, um, uh, for these issues, I'd like to, to think about why this hasn't been done before, why it's needed today, not needed in the sense that we can describe the necessity, but why hasn't it been resolved to this point? And from what I hear, there is a mix of potentially some ignorance as to what is occurring in the system. There is sadly, it sounds like some indifference uh, as Kara talked about um, with regards to faux fears about flooding toilets with, with pads being uh, flushed down toilets. Is it, I also thought there might be something about the fact that the system is just, has been historically disproportionately men. It is designed by men. It is a system that has a high degree of hyper-masculinity. It is a system that is almost inherently resource depleted. It is a place where people until relatively recently, um, lawmakers were not especially interested in putting resources into it. And perhaps that the depictions that were seen by the public focused on men, and there may be others. So I'd like to go around and talk with, uh, talk with each of you as to what you think the obstacles have been to this legislation coming about uh, in 2021 when it seems like it should have been passed in the previous century. So let me begin with Kurt. Uh, th thanks, Eric. I mean, I think all the things that you said uh, are part of it, right? And, and I, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of really good input from everybody else. So I'm going to focus on one um, thing that I think jumps out at me. It's historically departments of corrections and BOPs, you know, Bureau of Prisons, have been very opaque. Uh, and we've just kind of, and I say we, like society and legislators um, and legislatures, have just kind of accepted that because they always fall back on, oh, it's a safety issue. It's a safety issue. We have to control the population. It's a safety issue, much of which may be the case. But just now, over the last number of years, when we hear about a lot of these stories, people are starting to question the opaqueness of the departments and the bureaus and go, hmm, okay, we don't want to interfere with any procedures. We don't want to make public any special procedure that's going to keep the uh, facilities safe and the people with inside them safe. But hey, I think you need to 
open up a little more. You need to give us some more data. You need to talk a little bit about why these things are happening. And it's just now that we just aren't giving them a blank check and we're still giving them too big of a blank check, quite frankly, but we're just not giving them a, a completely blank check and, and carte blanche to be like, do what you want, just keep us safe. Now lawmakers are questioning uh, how procedures affect people. Now they're asking for more data. Now they're asking for these departments of corrections to open up their procedures a little bit because we're hearing these stories about how people are treated and with no dignity, right? So I think there's a million other answers to your question, Eric, and I'm going to sure we're going to hear some, but I think the reason things are changing now because that carte blanche that legislatures have always, always, always given the departments of corrections in their state is not as blank anymore. They want more information. And now that it's coming out, people are realizing there's a lot of stuff that can be done. I'm not going to sit here and say the system is terrible. It should be scrapped. Um, but man, it can be a lot better. And we're learning uh, the areas, whether it's women or other areas, where improvements need and have to be made so people are treated like the human beings that they are. Thank you, Kurt. Same question for you, Pamela, and uh, particularly given someone who has the experience with the system that you have. So Eric, as Kurt said, I agree with you. It's a combination of all of those things that you mentioned. Um, when we're talking about resources, it's baffling to me that the prison industrial system um, generates billions of dollars. However, they lack all of the resources in all of the penal institutions. So basically, and we get to mass incarceration again because of that money meal, except for the money is not being spent to put in resources to care for the people that we're detaining. Um, in addition to that, as far as the system being disproportionate, it is disproportionate, just like basically everything in the United States is disproportionate for women based on patriarchy. You know, the, everything, basically the entire United States was built and founded by men and, you know, with little regard to women and nothing changes in the criminal justice system when it comes to that, which is why they don't see a need um, to make things more gender equitable for us women. Um, in addition to that, back to the money, um, what I get told on a regular basis is how expensive it is to provide the things that are needed. They recognize that, yes, women have, you know, many different needs, very complex needs um, beyond the men, but they don't want to spend the dollars and the cents um, to adequately meet those needs for the women. And I say to that, as we all have been saying um, during this during during this session, then we should find alternative measures for women to help hold themselves accountable um, for their crimes. As we also have mentioned that most of these women are incarcerated for nonviolent crimes. They are not a public safety risk. Um, so why don't we look into that? Which again, raises my eyebrows to because it's gonna take away money that is being generated to have us there. And as far as the changes that are occurring now, I feel like the changes that are occurring now because um, someone pulled the coattails to say, 
they were everybody's they were so busy focused on the money now they're getting their coattails pulled to say this is how we're treating our people is the money more important than the people is the punishment more important than the people than these women we're destroying homes we're destroying families and it's not only showing in you know the stories that we see every day about the inhumane treatment but it's also showing up in the schools where you know, kids are without parents and they're, you know, acting out more. Um, they're having more um, mental health issues because the families are broken up. And it's finally gotten to a point where things are just kind of spiraling a little bit out beyond, you know, what we consider acceptable that we are deciding to look at the whole picture and, you know, making some type of effort to make some changes. But as also stated, there is still so much more that needs to be done. Thank you, thank you very much. And let me let me add this to the mix as to whether this is relevant, and and then ask the same question of Darrell. It's true as a statistical matter, there are differences in in terms of the percentages of crimes committed by men versus women. Uh, women tend to uh, commit. If they are crimes that they uh, that they are convicted of, they tend to be sometimes minor property crimes, as well as gendered crimes like prostitution and drug crimes. And then for men, you will see a disparity in terms of uh, crimes of violence. Should that be part of the calculus in terms of setting uh, prison policy? Is the reality of the types of crimes that are committed by a a population of women who are incarcerated versus a population of men. So that's one question. And maybe more generally, Darrell, as somebody who's a policy analyst and advocate, how do these issues of gender and different populations and different crimes, how does that fit in the mix when you're trying to affect policy for the better? Thanks, Eric. Um, no, I, I agree very strongly with Pamela and Kurt about the, and yourself about the kind of the, the problems that the systems faces. I, I think whether it's women or men, we have a strong and systematic bias against persons who are incarcerated. Um, we, we tend to believe in the common American understanding is that people who are incarcerated are different, they're bad, they're somehow wrong. And the idea is that we send them to prison so that they could be housed and hopefully fixed within the prison system. That bias, I think, originates because a lot of people who are incarcerated are poor, they're people of color, and most, there's a strong number who are men or, or women. And I think that bias, whether they're men or women, the bias around color, around income, around you know, criminality really prevents us from taking appropriate steps to reform the system. I, I, I think from a gender perspective, you know, one thing I, I, I try to do is not to look at so much the idea of the different type of crimes people are committed, as opposed to looking at, you know, in, in a Christian vernacular, you would say hate, hate the sin, love the sinner. And recognizing that crime is is a part is an outlook of trauma, is an outlook of kind of it's a it's a result of kind of a, 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 a failure within society to kind of address trauma 
and to address different needs that people may have. And really, you know, understanding that most everyone who's going to prison is going to be coming home at some point. So we need to look at, as, at prison as not a chance to punish people, but as a chance to reform and to kill people who have experienced trauma throughout their lives. So, you know, getting rid of that strong systematic bias against persons who are incarcerated, I think is an important first step in reforming the system. And that, and that bias, you know, it, it, it plays out throughout the system. We, we see it in the way that prosecutors kind of charge and overcharge people. Uh, we see it in the inhumane treatment that people receive it within, within the prison system which we've been talking about a lot today. And we see it when they're, when they're released and the lack of housing and the lack of jobs that you know, force people to kind of recidivate and you know, continue um, down um, making the same mistakes that they, they were previously making. So I, I think we really have a lot of work to do to unpack the bias we have against people who are incarcerated. Um, people who are accused of crimes. And once we start to unpack that, we can really make changes to the system that are focused on reducing trauma, killing people, and getting people back into society. Thank you. And same question for you, Holly, uh, also a, an advocate and policy uh, analyst. What are your thoughts about the limitations or impediments that have have uh, have, uh, have faced the various bills, both here in Arizona and elsewhere, and how those have been overcome, and uh, whether, in fact, all of them have been overcome. Well, I got to thinking about this after you all invited me onto this podcast. You know, I, I idolized Justice O'Connor as a little girl, and I want to say she was confirmed what in in 1981, and you know, roughly four decades later, you know, women are still so underrepresented at state houses, in state houses across the country. And, um, you know, if you want to change lives, you've got to be able to change laws. And so um, uh, we want to continue to be a driver of this conversation. And on behalf of the Justice Action Network and the Coalition for Public Safety, it's my great honor and privilege uh, to announce that we'll be contributing uh, $10,000 to the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law uh, to continue to amplify the stories of women like Pamela and Kara and Andrea Hybear, who who died in federal prison, um, you know, during the pandemic, um, you know, serving uh, two years for a, a, a minor crime, maintaining a drug-involved uh, premises. Stories like Raquel Esquivel, uh, who just delivered a baby in federal prison. Uh, she went back after being revoked on home confinement um, after having served uh, almost 15 years for mar a marijuana conviction. I mean, these stories are gut-wrenching. Uh, I hope you all will continue to um, use your platform and the legacy of Justice O'Connor, um, you know, to, to lift up these stories and push for more oversight. Uh, Y'all have a lot of problems in Arizona. We got problems in Kentucky and across the country too, but, you know, I, I hope you all will continue to push for increased oversight and, and reform, uh, especially in Arizona. Thank you, Holly. Same question for you, Kara, given your, uh, your experiences and your unique perspective. What have been the obstacles and, and impediments that you've seen, and, and what, are, what, what do you think are the, the prospects for change? Thanks, Eric. So, so I would have to agree that, well, especially here in Arizona, 
we are behind everybody else, I feel like, um, and, you know, progressive type laws being passed, um, people of color being more represented in other states than they are here. I think that's been a lot of the obstacles. Um, like Darrell said, there's a stigma of incarcerated people um, that were bad, that were wrong. Um, you know, I never, when I was a kid, thought I would go to prison. I don't think any of us do. I was actually like, you know, one of the good kids. I graduated early from high school. I went to college. I got my degree, um, you know, and then I went through a bad divorce and I just kind of spiraled out of control. Um, and the only thing that I had known about prison or, you know, courts before this was what I had seen on TV. So shows like Law and Order, Chicago PD, where they glorify, um, you know, the control that the police have and the special relationship that they have, where they cover for each other and treat people the, any way that they deem necessary and just, you know, shoot people of color. And um, so I think that it really comes down to like, like everyone said, really is changing the stigma of incarcerated people. Um, like I said before, most of these people are in prison for nonviolent offenses, for something related to drugs. Again, criminal, criminalizing a health issue. So I think that really um, to move forward, and to continue to make change is to continue to stand up, right? I personally have learned, and maybe this is wrong, to use my white privilege. When I go up to the legislator and talk to these white men, maybe they'll listen to me a little bit more. I don't know. But I try to stand up for all of the women. Some of the best women that I've met, I met in prison. Some of my best friends I've met in prison. All of us just went through a hard time. We re receive no rehabilitation while in prison. That's why so many women reoffend. Um, well, any people reoffend. And we really have no support when we get out either, when we come home to our families. So think about not only us coming home and how overwhelming it is for the the incarcerated person, but their family as well. They have to make a huge adjustment as well. And it's important for me to stand up, tell my story, and not let the lawmakers discourage us, make us feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. At this point, I'm used to it. The women that I work with and that I've trained, we're used to being uncomfortable. That's the only way that things are gonna be changed is to be uncomfortable and to make others uncomfortable because then maybe they'll open their eyes and take a look at what's really going on. So hopefully, as long as we keep standing up and not being ashamed, finding power in our stories, in our voices, that's the only way we're gonna make change. That's the only way we're gonna change people's minds is to put a face to these stories and to allow people to see us as humans because that's what we are. We made some mistakes. We did our time. We deserve to come out to a supportive community. Thank you. 
Thank you, Kara. And uh, I, I quick follow up. It is, uh, it will seem a little bit lighthearted, but it's not meant to be that way. The, I, I mentioned one of the possibilities as to why this particular area of reform has been, seems to be so late to the game. And it, one of it was that the depictions uh, um, uh, in public often are of men, typically are of men, um, disproportionately men. And I'm wondering whether the popularity of the TV show, uh, Orange is the New Black, and uh, that depiction and relatively new depiction of women being incarcerated, what impact that had, if any, and can popular culture, as well as the real stories that are told by Pamela and by Kara and by others on this panel, um, whether they can affect the dialogue and improve public policy. So let me throw that out first, maybe to, to Pamela uh, and Kara, given their experiences as to whether they that those are the depictions and concerns were anyway accurate. And then more generally, whether that type of uh, expression of issues in a medium to the public can impact uh, the decisions by public policymakers. Shows like Orange is the New Black, um, although they tell a number of the storylines that go on inside, they're minimized and in some cases humorized, you know, made humorous. Um, and my guess is that they do that for American society that's watching the show to be able to digest rather than giving them the real truth. Um, but for me, my concern about that is it, the situations, although they're bringing awareness to them, they won't be taken as serious as they should be because again, they are, you know, uh, minimized. So I feel like if we're gonna have those type of shows, they need to be um, more, more realistic and more to the point of what's really going on, not bring awareness, but then also put a second thought in a person's head that yes, okay, these things are happening, but doesn't seem like it's that bad because it's beyond that bad. Um, we really need to know what the real issues are, not just, you know, gloss over it and make it, you know, okay enough to put on a television show again, monetizing it. And, you know, the women who are incarcerated that these stories are about are not benefiting from the money that's being made off these shows and not benefiting because it's not giving enough concrete information to help um, push legislations is bringing awareness, but it needs to, it should be, it should be doing more. It should be doing more, a lot more. And, you know, women basically, like you stated earlier, when you mentioned the type of crimes that women are incarcerated for, these are what we call survivor crimes. Women are selling themselves or um, stealing um, to provide for their families. So rather than punish these folks, um, we should be looking at the ideology of the issues and focusing on, you know, fixing those problems. Um, like Kara, I too um, 
did not expect to see myself in prison. I am, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and so I'm from what's considered a typical Southern family, which means that my family was uneducated and low income. Um, I was the first person in my family to even graduate from high school, nevertheless, to go on um, to, you know, achieve any kind of secondary education and to have a career as a registered nurse. And so, you know, from the environment that I come from, there were no resources. There was a lack, lack of resources, um, which caused people, um, for example, my mother, because she could not get a job to be in, incarcerated throughout my childhood. For me, you know, knowing that, living that, it was always my goal to change um, the generational dynamics of my family, which is why I educated myself. So the last thing I expected was to end up incarcerated, but I ran into the problem when I became an entrepreneur thinking that, well, not thinking, I had achieved the ultimate goal for me as far as my family, but what I didn't have was the knowledge of running that business. And because of, again, of my environment, there was no one that I can consult with to get the correct answers and trying to figure out things on my own, make the wrong decisions, which landed me with that 78 um, federal sentence. Not that I was intentionally trying to do things. Um, like in both of our cases, myself and Kara, just um, the situations of life, um, not intentionally trying to do anything wrong, caused us to be incarcerated and caused us to have to endure the things that we have endured. Um, I often say that the price that we pay as women being incarcerated highly exceeds the, um, the crime and far exceeds the sentence. Because when we're sentenced, we're sentenced to be incarcerated, to be held accountable for what we did. We are not sentenced to be dehumanized. We're not sentenced to be sexually assaulted. We're not sentenced to be um, denied medical care. We're not sentenced to be, you know, um, tortured by being placed in solitary confinement. I was not sentenced to have to the death of my unborn child. You know, we're not sentenced for those things. Um, and I would also be remiss if I didn't mention my friend and colleague, Sue Ellen Allen, who is from Arizona, who initiated the work around the dignity um, for incarcerated women's um, legislation there in Arizona. And unfortunately, um, she passed from cancer before she could see things come to fruition. Um, so I'm happy that you all did um, pass the legislation there in Arizona for, you know, for all the hard work that she put in. And even with her, um, several times we were invited to the White House to speak about women's issues um, to different panels, governors around the country um, and different other stakeholders. And again, you know, it, it was like Kurt said, remarkable, but not in a good way to me that um, a lot of these folks that run the country didn't even have a clue that it was going on themselves. I, I just want to piggyback on something Pamela said. I, um, Sue Ellen is, did tremendous work in Arizona on behalf of incarcerated people and incarcerated women. She, she led the, the fight for the Dignity Act along with a lot of other incarcerated women sharing their stories and just telling people um, about the conditions in Arizona prisons. And, so, and you know, this 
in the, in the next couple of weeks, there's a trial um, in Arizona, Parsons versus the Parsons trial that the ACLU of Arizona and the ACLU National Prison Project is bringing. And Sue Ellen had a, a great deal to do with that, with that investigation and that lawsuit being brought um, coming to the ACLU uh, and just telling the story about the lack of medical care um, in, in Arizona Department of Corrections. So these, these efforts from a policy perspective are always led by the people who are most, most impacted. And this is no different. Um, really, these efforts have been led by incarcerated women, formerly incarcerated women, sharing their stories, sharing their power, um, and letting people know what's what's going on inside. So thank you, Pamela. Thank you, Kara. And thank you, uh, Sue Ellen, for your, for your work. That brings us to the end of our time today. We want to thank our guests for a terrific discussion. Kurt Altman, State Director for Right on Crime. Holly Harris, President and Executive Director of the Justice Action Network. Darrell Hill, Policy Director of the ACLU of Arizona. Kara Williams, Smart Justice Organizer of the Arizona ACLU, and Pamela Wynn, founder of the advocacy group Restore Her. Thanks also to my co-host, Belina Beatty, and our producer, Amina Ketchen-Kamel. This podcast is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice. <laughs>